you take your Bibles, Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5. We'll be looking at Genesis 5 and two other passages this morning, so be ready to use your fingers and move to a different location with your Bible, and uh, we will uh, be looking at several different things. I don't know if you've ever heard the name Lucille Randone. Well, maybe you know her by her other name. She's known as Sister uh, Andre. Okay, it's not ringing bells for you, okay? Um, she uh, was a nun for a number of years, worked as a governess, a teacher, a missionary before retiring at the age of 75. Still doesn't ring any bells for you. Okay, um, Lucille Randone. Uh, if I was to, to put her and put her with another name, and I was to say Methuselah, you go Methuselah. You say, well, what does Lucille Randone have to do with Methuselah? Lucille Randone is the oldest living human being on earth. Well, at least verified. There's a lot of people who have the unverified uh, possibilities that they are living longer, but she's the one that right now she is living, and she's 118 years old and 233 days. You go, what does that make her? Well, that makes her the fourth oldest recorded living person, though there are some people catching up to her. If she decides to pass, they will pass her. So uh, there is a title to be had here. There, she is uh, known for being the oldest survivor of COVID-19 that she got when she was 117 years old. So uh, she is the oldest person that is living right now. You have another individual by the name of Jean-Louis uh, Calment, and you say, who's that? Or Jean, uh, probably more properly said. Uh, and that's the oldest person. She lived to be 122 years uh, and 164 days. And she received all sorts of media attention because she went right past whatever the records were uh, by several years. And uh, she passed away uh, back in 1997. You look at those, and then you look at what we've read this morning. You know, 118 years, well, that's, that's kind of short. We saw numbers in the 900s, including Methuselah, who's 969 years old. And when most people come to this passage in Genesis chapter 5, for them, it's just reading about people who have lived a really, really long time. And it's really not all that important. But realize this, that when you read through your scripture, and even as we get into this book of Genesis, as Moses was writing this for a group of people that were about to enter in the promised land, knowing that generations upon generations would read this, he was moved by the Holy Spirit to include this lengthy genealogy. And for some of us at times, when it comes to passages like this in Scripture, we, we tend to think, why would I want to deal with a passage like that and even think about it? Uh, there's names that are, well, somewhat difficult to say. And uh, they're just talking about the fact that they had children and they died and all of this. Why is this important? And we have to remind ourselves of the fact that as you read in the New Testament, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says this, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for certain things. So as we 
think through and you read through Genesis chapter 5, you're just kind of going, what is the profit of a passage like that? Well, what is uh, the thing that God uh, moved Moses to write this section of Scripture and take such time in the middle of a story as you're waiting for the flood to happen? I mean, the big things. Why do we have something like this in the midst of our Scripture reading? Well, I'll just simply say this uh, for us this morning, if you want a theme for what we're going to look at, it's just simply this, and we'll get there, but uh, in our looking at it, it's this simply this, that those that follow God will proclaim God's work to the godless. Okay, those that follow God will proclaim God's work to the godless. And what you find in reading through this in, in Genesis chapter 5, if you've been with us, you, you know that it's a contrast to what in Genesis 5 is a contrast to what is going on in Genesis chapter 4. You go, what's that? You had the line of Cain. Cain who murdered his brother. And then as we find in Genesis 4 that he went from the presence of the Lord. He basically flees from God and doesn't want anything to do with him. He goes out and he, he builds the first city and he names it after his son. And eventually as you go through seven generations, he's got grandchildren that are the ones who come up with music, are the ones who come up with the crafting of metals. They, they are the ones who uh, figure out how to raise animals on a grand scale as far as being able to produce a lot of them. All of these things that these family line that's here, what you find is that it's a complete disaster. Because at the last character that we have is a man by the name of Lamech who is just like his great-great-great-grandfather Cain because he's announcing this piece of poetry to his two wives and he's announcing this poetry and just simply saying this, that I killed somebody for hurting me. And if anybody wants to do that, I'm going to avenge them 70 times 7. And suddenly you just have the story stop there with Cain. And it says this, that Adam and Eve had another son by the name of Seth. And we ended last week at verse number 26, that it simply ends with this, that men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And you go, what does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? In the context here, it's just simply this, that they begin to proclaim the name of the Lord. You go, why? Because they're living amongst a bunch of people who have left God. They've abandoned him completely. They've gone their own way and they don't know about him. And so you have a generation that's listed in Genesis chapter 5 of individuals who are ones that are following after God. This is why this line is being traced out is because these are people who in their family are ones who are following after God from generation to generation. This is a generation that God would say, this is somebody to be exemplified. So you go, okay, these are a storyline of individuals who are, well, followers of God. And what we could just simply come up with first is this, is that even followers of God die. You know, there, there is some thought that when a person becomes a follower of God, or we might say in our modern terms that a person becomes a Christian, that everything becomes great and grand. There's no problems after a person gets saved. And when a person realizes that that's not the case, sometimes they get discouraged. But do you realize that 
it doesn't matter if a person is saved or unsaved, a follower of God or not, they're still going to die. I mean, these people lived long lives. You start off in the, the verse 1 and 2, there's this kind of hope that you have here that God created man. It's kind of going back and telling the creation story. Verse 2, male and female created them, blessed them, and called their name Adam in the day that they were created. And they're having children, and there's this hope. I mean, no one, when they have a child at birth, is thinking about their death. There's an excitement, a hope that's there uh, in this story. But as you go through this, you begin to find that people die that are followers of God. You have Adam, uh, you find his death recorded in verse number 5. All the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Do you realize that's a fulfillment of what God said to Adam and Eve? You eat of this fruit and you shall what? Surely die. It's going to happen. It took 930 years for Adam to have this happen. And you look at some of the other dates, and as we said, you get to Methuselah, who is the great-grandfather of, uh, the grandfather of uh, Noah. He lives 969 years. And you just look at this, and it's the, the refrain over and over again. This person is born. They eventually have children. And after they have children, they live a long time and they eventually die. I mean, the names don't mean a whole lot uh, in the sense of uh, the, the names themselves. Are they vitally important to know everything? But there is one that's a rather interesting name. It's the one Methuselah. His name means something. Some people think it means man of the spear or something like that. But more than likely, it probably means this, that when he dies it shall come. Why Methuselah's dad, Jared, decided, or excuse me, Enoch decided to call him this? Uh, my guess is that Enoch knew certain things. We're going to find out that he's prophesying things uh, that no one else could know, but he named his son when it, or when he dies, it shall come. You know, what shall come? Well, he knew this, the judgment was coming, but in this list, you just see over and over again that people die, even good people. I mean, this is theological. You go, why do people die? Because we sin. Romans chapter 5, uh, as you read through a passage that's talking about the first Adam and then eventually the second Adam, you go, who's the second Adam? Christ. The impact that they have on the human race, uh, you find in Romans chapter 5 that it says this, Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. There is going to be a process where sooner or later this body that we live in is going to be separated from our soul and spirit. And that's what death is. It's a separation. If you want a definition of death, that's simply what it is problem is is that mankind is separated from their god by their sins that's called the second death if they continue in that state right through their physical death they are going to be separated from god forever but you find that by one man sin entered the world death by sin so death passed upon all men and you're seeing this over and over again that mankind died mankind died another person died even though they were we would put it categorize this good people following god having faith in God. And Romans 5.17 tells us this, if 
For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign by life through one Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that a little bit here in the future of this passage. But the fact is, is one person's death brought, or sin brought death. One person's life and death brings about life. Jesus Christ was able to, by his death, bring about life. But as you read through this refrain, it, it would get discouraging for a person reading this. It doesn't matter how long you live. And the people that are reading at this point, maximum life, about 120 years for them. Moses lived to be about 120 uh, when he is writing his book. And they're thinking, 900 years, long time, but they still die. And so you find in this passage that even followers of God will eventually die. But you find this, that followers of God are confident that God will bring comfort. Okay, There's a hope for people who are followers of God, even though death happens. You have two different individuals that we're going to look at in this list. And the first one is the only one that we find speaking in this whole section that we just read this morning. An individual by the name of Lamech. As you read through the story, you find uh, you have Enoch who bears Methuselah. Methuselah has a son by the name of Lamech. And Lamech has a son that we're familiar with by the name of Noah. And you find in, in verse number uh, 28, uh, it says this, that Lamech lived 182 years and begat a son. And he called his name Noah, saying, This same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. Now, for anyone that's reading through this, and if you were just you know, sitting down, you read through Genesis chapter 4 and Genesis chapter 5, that name Lamech means something. You know why? Because the last guy and the other line and Cain's line was named Lamech. And what's he boasting about? He's the only other one that speaks in that family line. Well, he's boasting about the fact that he's a person who can bring vengeance upon people and he's going to take matters into his own hands and he's going to take care of things. It's all about him solving problems, him taking care of things. But on the other hand, you have this individual who is in the line of uh, Seth, who's a follower of God, who names his son on the basis of the confidence that something's going to happen. And you go, well, what does he name his son? He names his son Noah. And you go, what does that mean? It means rest. And it sort of sounds like a word, like in the Hebrew, also that is the word Nahum. Perhaps you've heard some scripture named after an individual like that. But the word Nahum just simply means comfort. And so what he says is, I'm going to name my son Noah because of this. Verse uh, number 29 again, the same shall comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. Now, initially, as you look at that, you're going, wait a second, Noah's going to be the one through whom the flood happens during his time frame and all the ground is going to be destroyed. I mean, what kind of comfort is that going to be? 
And there's two thoughts here. We don't know exactly what Lamech knows and what God had revealed to him, but there are two things as you look at this. Because when Noah does get off the ark, he offers the sacrifice, there's this rainbow that appears in the sky, and he says, God says this, this is a promise of what? Seasons spring and winter and all of these things that are going to happen it seems like suddenly god is giving mankind some help in the growing of things i mean after mankind sinned god said the ground's going to be cursed there's going to be thorns and thistles that come forth and it's going to be difficult by the sweat of thy brow you're going to work the ground and eventually you're going to die and so tilling the ground and working in fields were not easy work, but it seems like that maybe after Noah's time, after this flood, that God does something to help mankind out in this process. Seasons and seasonal uh, plantings and things like this that make the, the process of this easier. But most people in thinking this is probably not, that's not exactly what he's referring to. Because you think about Noah, he's the only one that's going to survive a great flood. He and his family, his three sons, their wives, his wife and himself, eight individuals that make it in the ark and make it through this. And you say, what's important about that? Well, God promised this, that God would bring one in Genesis 3 and verse 15 that would crush Satan's head. One that would finally defeat Satan. One that would do this. And with the naming of Lamech, there's this looking forward that God's going to do something about this whole problem of sin. The curse of sin that brings a world that's not functioning right. And all of these things. That God's going to do something to bring someone along. And there's this hope in Lamech's statement as he looks forward that through this one, God is going to eventually bring the comfort that is needed. The rest that is needed. For individuals who are being bumped and beaten and hurt by sin. That eventually through the line of Lamech, eventually through his son, he's got this confidence that God is going to bring a comfort to all people. Just like God promised. Back in Genesis 3.15, there's a, there's a confidence in what Lamech says. It's not him saying, we're going to solve our problems. No, there's this belief that through Noah, God is going to be able to bring the comfort that he's promised. And so the contrast is great. Lamech of Cain's line, it's all about self-sufficiency. Here Lamech is looking forward and looking to God to do something, to take care of things. And so as you look at this list, you see that followers of God uh, are looking forward to God bringing comfort. But I want to look at one more character in this story. We passed over it, and you probably noticed in the reading that all of a sudden things changed there for an instant as you read through the genealogy. And as you look at verses 21 to 24, you find that followers of God live to please God. Followers of God live to please God. They live their life for Him. And what you have in verse 21 is this individual by the name of Enoch. 
He lived 65 years. He begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years. He begat sons and daughters. All the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God. And if you were, if you were just thinking through this, you'd say, and he died. But the difference in this story, as you read there in verse number 24, is that Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Something different happened to him. Now, what does it mean that Enoch walked with God? I mean, you've kind of had that term already as you read through the book of Genesis, that Adam and Eve walked in the garden uh, with the voice of God, and they walked in the cool of the evening with him. They had fellowship with him. But when you read that statement throughout the scripture that walking with God is this idea of an individual who's living their life and they're fellowshipping with God every day, like a steady walking as we have our feet go in front of one another and that's considered a walk, day in and day out, this individual is walking with God. They are in tune with him. They're having fellowship with him. I mean, this is something that God wanted his people to do. Remember, Moses is writing for people who are about to enter in the promised land. They've had this tabernacle built where God is uh, visibly dwelling. And he's telling his people, I want you to walk with me. I've been walking with you. I want you to be with me. I want you to fellowship with me. And you find that God walks in the camp. Same term used for this. And and you find that walking with God is a common inscription of a life of fellowship and obedience with the Lord, as if to say that walking with the Lord was a step above mere living. To walk with God was commanded of Israel. And it was, is commanded, as you think through the scriptures, it's commanded for us as modern day believers in Jesus Christ. I mean, think about what God said back in the past. Leviticus 26 and verse 3 and 4, speaking to the nation of Israel, he says this, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, then I will give you the rain in due season. What he's just simply saying is this, you're fellowshipping with me. I'm going to give you the blessings promised for one who's walking and fellowshipping with me. Or probably one of the more famous passages in our Old Testament there are people that are saying, what does God want? Does he want, you know, rivers of oil and thousands and thousands of sacrifices? I mean, does God want that from me? Does he require that from me? And the answer that you find in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8 is just simply this. He hath showed you, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to what? To walk humbly with thy God. God's not expecting thousands of sacrifices and rivers of oil. No, he wants to fellowship with you. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants you to know him. He knows you well because he created you. He knows your frame. It is but dust. He knows who you are. But he wants us to have fellowship with him. I mean, this is the cry of the Old Testament, but as you get into Colossians chapter 2 in the New Testament, you find this, as ye therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. You receive Jesus Christ by faith, then you need to walk with him as if he really truly does exist day in and day out. You need to be one that is with him. 
And you find that in this statement that it says, for a person that walks with God, what did God do for Enoch? There can be something unusual that happens. I mean, some people die, but do you realize that some will not see death? As you look at the New Testament, you find that the Scripture makes very clear in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that people were questioning, well, what about the people who had died in Christ? They died as a saved person, but what happened to them? And 1 Thessalonians 4 makes very clear that there's an occasion coming that the Lord is going to come back. The Lord doesn't want people to be ignorant, but that He's going to come. And in an instant, what's going to happen is that those that are dead in Christ shall rise first. And we which are alive and remain shall be gathered in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. You know, the Scripture talks about this, that there are individuals, yes, that are followers of Christ, that are going to die, but there are someday going to be individuals that are not going to see death when the Lord comes back. With Enoch, you see a hinting of what God is going to do for individuals that walk with him that they might not even see death. For Enoch, he didn't. God, he was walking with God, and one day God took him. He did not see death. And for us as believers, we're seeing this, that followers of God live to please God. They walk with God. But I also want you to see that they also have faith in God. If you don't have this in your your center column reference, perhaps in your Bible or a note somewhere, there are two other passages of Scripture that talk about Enoch. One of them is Hebrews 11, verses 5 and 6. The other is Jude 14 and 15. There's no second chapter in Jude, so you just say Jude 14 and 15. And I want us to look at these passages because they give us a New Testament commentary on Enoch. They give us more information than what we have just in this story. So let's turn our Bibles over to Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, you have what is known as the Hall of Faith, where God writes down individuals who were examples of people who just, even without seeing, are believing what God is and who He is and acting as if He really truly does exist. I mean, we find that very first verse, now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And what was going to happen is that you're going to have examples of people who believe that God really does exist. We looked at one already in our study of Genesis. You have in verse 4, this Abel who offered a sacrifice to God by faith. That's why his sacrifice was accepted. Cain's wasn't. He wasn't looking at God uh, as really being important worthy of honor but then after verse 4 you have in verse 5 that god and i mean you have all sorts of individuals that you would say were great people of faith you know you go abraham david individuals like that moses noah those would be people you would find in the hall of faith but god in his well moving of the holy spirit decided that it was good to have included this testimony of enoch in verse 5 it says this By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated for him for before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. 
And then there's a verse that we oftentimes forget is connected with Enoch, and we forget this is the case. But verse 6, it says this, but without faith, it is impossible to please God, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. For Enoch, what you find, faith was this. He's living in a generation that has abandoned God. They're going their own way. They're living for what the the here and now is. And he is living as, first of all, one who believes that God exists. Amongst a generation of people that say, he doesn't exist. He lives by faith. He had not seen God. No man has seen God. He had not seen God, but he knew he existed. He knew from generations past as it was handed down that God truly did exist. And that there was a God who did certain things, that he created the world that we lived in and gave us life and breath. And all of these things, these things would have been passed down to him along with the promises made to Adam and Eve about a coming Savior. He believed that God really did exist. And you say, God was pleased with them? Yes, because he had faith in a God that the rest of the world was saying, He's not there. There's no such thing as God. Or we don't care to know God. He really doesn't have a say in what goes on here. But he had this testimony, verse 6, without faith it's impossible to God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. What Enoch is just simply declaring is that there's something beyond this life. That we as individuals are going to have to stand before God. That we are going to have to give report. That we're going to have to give account of our life. Whether or not we lived it in trust and faith in God or we lived it for ourselves. And that God will reward on the basis of that. See, Enoch by his life, by his faith, was one who pleased God. And God in his Well, being pleased with what Enoch did and having faith in a culture that didn't believe in God was said this, in this passage, he translated him. He moved him from one location to another location, from here on earth right into the presence of God in heaven. In an instant, he pleased God. You go, why? Because he had faith when a world around him was saying there is no God or he is of no need to pay attention to. He had faith in God, and he believed that God was a rewarder in them that diligently seek him. And you go, did he really believe that God was there and was going to judge mankind? And the answer is absolutely. You go, how do you know that? It's what we find in Jude. And I want you to turn over to the second to last book in your Bible. You have Revelation, but there's a very, that small book right in front of it, Jude. Jude, the brother, the half-brother of Jesus, He wrote this. He's really writing a letter uh, to warn people about the fact that false teachers are in the church. People are preaching things that God doesn't exist or he's really of no need or that you just live life for yourself. They're preaching these things. As you read through what Jude's talking about, these men that are claiming to be religious teachers are proclaiming. And so he's warning people, don't pay attention to individuals like this. People are saying there is no God or you don't need to worry about him. Live for yourself. Because then in verse 14, he says, listen, judgment's coming. You need to be ready for this. You need to be ready to stand before your God. And then he says this, verse 14, and Enoch also, 
the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, who? False teachers, people who deny that God exists, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, in reading through that, there were two words that should have popped up in your mind. You ought to underline them. The word all, and then a word describing the generation he lived in. What was it? Ungodly. See, what he's doing, we we don't have record of this in the Old Testament that he said these things. This was passed down by Jewish tradition and we have confirmation by the Holy Spirit with Jude writing this, that this was something that Enoch was preaching. He was preaching, God is going to come back and behold, and and the, 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 the text is kind of a unique, we would say that God is coming. He actually, when Enoch's prophesying this, he's actually prophesying in past tense as if it's already happened to him it's so real that it's going to occur that it's almost in the past tense for him but he says behold this is what's going to happen god is going to come and he's going to come with his holy ones you see there in verse number 14 it says that he's coming with ten thousands of his saints or the word literally is this myriads of his saints his holy ones and you go who are the holy ones the angels And we know the Lord is coming back one day with his angels. You find this in Matthew 25 and verse 31. When he comes to judge the world, he's going to come with that. He's also going to come with saints. Ones that have passed on before that are followers of God. They're going to come. Colossians 3 and verse 4 tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 13. But what's going to happen? God is going to judge those that are ungodly. You know, what, what are ungodly people? Remember as a kid and hearing this and you, you know, think of ungodly people. And when you thought of terms like that, you normally thought of, you know, the worst person you could think of. You know, Hitler. He's ungodly, obviously. And, you know, well, you know, you think of some certain individuals that are criminals and you go, ah, oh, you know what, they're, they're obviously ungodly. But do you know what ungodly people are like? There's people who might be good neighbors, but they're just living for their own life. God has no room in their thoughts. They live as if he doesn't really play a role in their life. They really don't care to know him. They really don't want to know him. And they're just living their life the way they want to. That, that's what it means when you see that term ungodly. That's the generation that Enoch was in. He had people that were in a line that had abandoned God, had left God and said, we don't need him. We're just going to function and build all that we can and do all these great works and whatever. And they're doing things that are beneficial for humanity, but we're doing nothing to take care of their problem with God and doing nothing to take care of sin. Enoch is preaching to a world of people who are living his life as if God has no say. And you say, well, 
what does he say about the Lord's coming? That the Lord is going to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds which they have committed and all of their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. What is God going to judge mankind eventually for? You see it here. Their words and their works. Everything they've done, everything they've said, they're going to be judged for that. And what you find is this, is that Enoch, if you figure out how long ago he lived, in, in rough estimates, he lived about 6,000 years ago. And he's declaring this truth that he knows is going to happen from God, that God is one day going to come. And he preaches it fervently. You go, why? Because he goes, there is a God and it's very clear that one day the world is going to stand before that God. All are. I mean, you see the four times that the word all is there. Everyone's going to stand before God. They need to be ready for this. And some aren't ready. You go, why? Because their name, as we find in Revelation uh, chapter 20, their name is not written in the Lamb's book of life. You go, what's the Lamb's book of life? Those that have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You say, what happens at that great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20 if their name is not found written in that book because they put faith in Jesus Christ? Well, it says this, that the books are pulled out, plural. And the works that these individuals have done, they're going to be judged by Christ. And because they're not found in the Lamb's book of life and that their works have been for themselves, that have been against God, you find in the end of Revelation chapter 20 that these individuals are cast into the lake of fire by God's angels. And the last thing that they hear is this, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. It's not that God didn't know them, it's that these people refused to know him. See, Enoch was doing this in his generation some 6,000 years ago. And you have to understand, we live in generations like this today. If you read in Second Peter, you find Peter there having to answer the charges of individuals that say this, where are the signs of his coming? Really, is there a God out there? Is he really going to come back? Is this really going to occur? He's got to remind them in Second Peter of the fact of what it was like before the flood, that it was normal. And people were questioning, really, is it going to flood? And then the flood came, a catastrophe upon the whole world. And what you find in Second Peter, he's just simply saying this, it's the same thing today. You've got people going, oh, is God really going to come back? No, he's not. I mean, just look at how things are going. He's not coming back. Uh, there's no sign that he's there. And what does Peter proclaim? He is coming back. There was no warning. But he will come back. And you think about this, we're 2,000 years removed from uh, Peter and what he said, and you go, well, what are we going to have to say to people? The fact is, is if we are ones who are walking with God and know that he really does truly exist, what are we going to do? We're going to warn people that God is coming. 
that eventually they're going to have to stand before him and we're going to have to proclaim this. And they're going to say, well, we don't see any sign of his coming. But the fact is, is we that know the word and you've had the scripture in front of you and you can say, this is what God's declared about himself. And this is what he said. You're going to prophesy like Enoch. Okay, you're going to declare like Enoch that God is truly coming. And for us, uh, we need to by life reflect Enoch first of all that we're walking with God that we have faith in God and especially this that we have faith in his son and then we live a life of faith that we please God by our life not that we're earning our salvation but we are one who's living as if God really does exist and one day we'll be with him we'll be in his presence we ought to live like that And that doesn't just require us to be silent witnesses by our life. It does at times require us to be bold. I mean, can you imagine preaching that kind of statement? God's going to come and judge you and you go, that's kind of harsh. Well, it's reality. And for Noah, you're going to find as we get to his story in two weeks, uh, Noah is a preacher of righteousness. He's telling people, listen, God's judging because of sin. He's going to bring a worldwide flood. He's a preacher of righteousness. That mankind's not right with God. They need to get right before God judges. You say, that's kind of harsh. It's reality. And so for us at times, it's going to be that not only do we live a life that just walks with God, we believe that He exists, and we act as if He does in our life, there are going to be times that we're simply going to have to declare God's coming. And you've got to be prepared for it. God's given you the opportunity through his son. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You go, that's kind of exclusive. It is, but that's what God said. If you want to be right with me, you have to know my son. You have to put faith in him. And for us as believers, we've got to be willing to at times to declare the truth even though it might be harsh and you go, well, you know what? People won't be happy, but you know what? God will be what? Pleased. And who are we really living for? Are we living for self on our own? Or are we living for God? So you say, we're getting ready here and it's obvious we're getting ready for the Lord's table here. You say, how does it connect? How does it connect today? What we're about to do is we are showing forth that there is a belief that Jesus Christ's body and blood was shed for us to save us. Think about this. When the Lord gave instructions to his disciples before he died, he said, this is what something that you are going to regularly do. This do in remembrance of me. And then he gave instructions on this, that you do this till he What? Till he comes back. You realize why we celebrate the Lord's Supper? It's not just only to remind us of the fact that, yes, we have been given a great gift in Jesus Christ, that he has saved us, and that he's given us forgiveness of sins, and it's a time for us to consider our own life. Are we living, reflecting Christ's life? But it's also a testimony as we gather together as a church to do this, that we're declaring to a world at large that he's coming back. He told us to do this until he comes. So we're doing this till he comes back as a testimony that he is one day going to come back. 
The world looks at this and goes, this is kind of weird, but what you're about to do makes no sense, but you're reminding yourself of what Jesus Christ did, and you're doing it as a testimony. I mean, this is what Christ commanded us to do, so we're pleasing him by doing this. But it's also a prophecy, much like it was in Enoch's time. He was prophesying that the Lord's coming back. So we are, as we gather around this table here uh, in just a second, that we are prophesying that the Lord is going to come back. He not only died uh, to go to heaven, he's died to go to heaven and come back because he's prepared a place, prepared a place for us. So that's the blessed truth as we get ready to get prepared here for this. But thank the Lord for everything he's given to us and what God has given to us, do we act like individuals that really do believe there's a God? Could it be seen that we walk with God and people know it? Lord, we thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder of individuals like this, though in this section there's not much, but with Enoch there's much. The man who believed that you really truly exist 6,000 years ago. And he was willing to declare to others that God really does exist and that they need to get ready to meet him. Lord, may we be the same way. May we be individuals that know who you are because we put faith in your son and then live like you really do exist. That we act and we speak as if you truly are an individual that has a play in this universe. So Lord, we, we pray as we get ready here to Remember what Christ has done for us. May we be individuals that all week, by our walk, reflect that we know you. Lord, there may be one that's here today that doesn't know Christ as Savior. They're, they're in danger at the judgment. We pray that they would come to know Jesus Christ, the Savior who gave his life for them so that they could have an eternity with you. May they come to know that today. May they be convinced their own soul that there is a God, that you truly do exist, that you sent your Son to die in their place, and that the only way to receive heaven is to put their faith and trust in Jesus. So Lord, we pray that you do that kind of work today. And this we pray in the name of the Son. Amen.